Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without policing and prisons. What's up? I'm Damon. I'm Kiss. And we are continuing to do what we do, exploring, learning from, talking with these experiments, these organizations, groups, entities, attempts at envisioning and putting into practice a different world. And we are joined in that work, as always by our one and only partner in decriminalization. Even a gal from Interrupting Criminalization is here. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so sweet, you guys. And I, I just got to say, I don't think I'm your one and only partner in decriminalization. That's true. That's true. But I appreciate true. the shout but out. In, in name, we don't say that to anyone else. Okay, you know, I'll take the tagline. Yeah, yeah, But we probably will from now on. We have affiliates <laughs> in decriminalization. <laughs> but partners, real partners, you know. Uh, it's good to see you. Good to hear your voice. Uh, who are we talking to today? Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Vivian Sansor. Vivian is coming to speak with us about the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library and its Traveling Kitchen, a project that seeks to preserve and promote heritage and threatened seed varieties, traditional Palestinian farming practices, and the cultural stories and identities associated with them. Based in the village of Batir, a UNESCO World Heritage Site outside Bethlehem, the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library also serves as a space for collaborations with artists, poets, writers, journalists, and other members to showcase and promote their talents and work. Working closely with farmers, Vivian has identified key seed varieties and food crops that are threatened with extinction and would provide the best opportunities to inspire local farmers and community members to actively preserve their bioculture and recuperate their local landscape. On their website, viviansensor.com, Vivian shares that part of the Fertile Crescent, Palestine has been considered one of the world's centers of diversity, particularly for wheat and barley. This biodiversity, which has kept us alive for millennia, is being threatened by policies that target farmers and force them to give up their heirloom seeds and adopt new varieties. Heirlooms, which have been carefully selected by our ancestors throughout thousands of years of research and imagination, form one of the last strongholds of resistance to the privatization of our life source, the seed. These seeds carry the DNA of our survival against a violent background that is seen across the hills and valleys through settlement and chemical input expansions. Heirloom seeds also tell us stories, connect us to our ancestral roots, remind us of our meals our families once made at special times of the year. The Palestine Heirloom Seed Library is an attempt to recover these ancient seeds and their stories and put them back into people's hands. It is an interactive art and agricultural project that aims to provide a conversation for people to exchange seeds and knowledge and to tell the stories of food and agriculture that may have been buried away and waiting to sprout like a seed. It is also a place where visitors may feel inspired by the seed as a subversive rebel of and for the people, traveling across borders and checkpoints to defy the violence of the landscape while reclaiming life and presence. This is an experiment that has been in existence in different forms uh, for years. We actually had the opportunity back in 2019 to sit down with Vivian on an episode of Ergo and learn from her. You can find that in our archives. It's episode 202. This understanding of the experiment as a whole is important before we hop into this convo because we refract this work through the prism of the violence happening right now. And as much as documenting the how and why 
of this organizing experiment. We try to understand what happens when this beautiful to the root work comes up against the reality of the most overwhelming and destructive state violence that we've seen in our lifetimes. We hold this conversation with Vivian on November 13th, 2023. And as we sit in her raw and beautiful and poignant and powerful reflections, we hold with us all the lives that have been lost and uplift the struggle for liberation until Palestine is free. All right, Joe, let's hop into the lab with the brilliant, warm, and wonderful Vivian Sansur. Just to make sure that we get it right, can you just share the full proper pronunciation of your name and your pronouns? My name is Vivian Sansur. My pronouns is Eagle Hawk Owl. That actually perfectly leads to a recurring first question, which we'll get to in one second. Um, but we, we are so excited and uh, already feeling the warmth that is always the case when we talk with our special guest today. The wonderful Vivian Sansur is in the lab with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want you to know that we do that bird call for people who don't say those birds right before. That's just across the board uh, oh, wow. for, for, for everyone. Um, and, but I do think it leads actually to a question that we don't ask everyone to start. But I think you're a good person to ask. If you could have any animal call be your like entrance music when you walk in somewhere, what animals would you would you choose? What sound would you want to like kind of announce your your arrival? Have we not done this before with the whales? Did we? I, yeah, this shows the extent of my resource. You, yeah, you're okay. <laughs> but I, I love it. I still love it. Is there a new animal then? Maybe you're sticking with the whale. No, I have moved to different uh, beings, but not to dismiss the whale. Inspired by the whale as well, <laughs> of course. But I have since uh, entered the world of mermaids. Oh. Not the Disney mermaids, but the real mermaids. Tell, tell me a, more. Tell me more about, the, about these mermaids. <laughs> uh, well, it's a long story, but in the unseen world where there are things we can't imagine, but yet sometimes we're able to imagine there are worlds that don't go with the rules of this world. And maybe they have evolved and developed and maintained us in a way that we yet don't understand. There's a lot of stories about mermaids in different spiritualities as well, including um, in Haitian voodoo, which has inspired a lot of what I'm learning about mermaids uh, as protectors, particularly to folks who, when they were abducted and enslaved and they chose their freedom over enslavement and fell off ships, that they were saved by these mystical beings, the mermaids. And it's something to really, really think more deeply about in a world that is attached to a lot of tangible violence. Mm. That's really beautiful. And the navigating and 
making sense of and rescuing through these escalations of tangible violence lead us to our other intro question that I want to be transparent about uh, before we set it up that it almost feels too small or too big or too close or too far uh, of a question to be asking at this time. But it is centered around time. So in this time, and that can be this hour, this day, this season, this lifetime, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Seriously, Damon? We can amend. We can amend. We can reshape. I literally had a meeting before I asked. No, I'm just saying that's 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 a very relevant question. It's just that um, the world has betrayed me. Yeah. The world has shown its failure. And the world has taken out its knives and has cut through my body and is in the process of sprinkling a lot of salt. Mm. Mm. And I wish that the world would have the mercy to at least kill without torture. Mm. That is the floor. And so in the midst of, of this salting and this torture, how are you treating the world through this immeasurable pain? Yeah, I actually have been thinking a lot about this question because when I think about the true failure, the failure that could be the failure of my own spirit, the true loss, I think of the possibility of me becoming an image of my torturer and how in the middle of my torture I can still keep perspective that my spirit must always be above this, like that my spirit that is under attack, that it might win by maintaining its ability to love, to be tender, to bring forth a new vision, and to hopefully interrupt the human cycle of so much, so much bloodshed. In that holding of the determination for that tenderness and that spirit remaining like above the the demand for destruction. You know, that's something that I could imagine the intensity of that being heightened in this moment and is something that like I've witnessed from you and your work and your words in the time that we've we've known each other. And so I want to go back, you know, like the conceit of what this show is or the the structure is around like the people who do the work we're profiling but really like the the experiments in creating safety in different ways that are not reliant on death-making institutions. Um, and so I'm wondering for you, you know, we can use the, the seed library as a, as a space or an example for this. As you started that work of gathering, understanding the literal and spiritual seeds, what was your hypothesis of like what that could make possible in holding the spirit above that destruction? I tell you my hypothesis. <gasps> 
it's very important to remember that I was born 45 years ago. And in those 45 years, I was born and still live under a very brutal military regime, which is the Israeli occupation. So I actually have not seen a day in my life. And I know my mother hasn't either, who was born in 1948. For the last 75 years, we have not seen a peaceful day or a day where our bodies literally and our movement, our homes, our way of life, our hearts have not been the place of these violent soldiers inflicting intentional pain and suffering on us. And I have also, in the 45 years, have never experienced more love and tenderness than I have also in that very same place, which is Palestine. So as we have been collectively being tortured for 75 years, and for me personally, 45 years and ongoing, we have created, or not necessarily created, but also expanded and hang on and survived through deep and old cultural and indigenous practices that we've had for thousands and thousands of years. And those cultural practices have been the concept of not letting anybody go to sleep hungry, for example. Uh, we even have a saying where we say, oh, nobody goes to sleep without dinner. It's not to say that everybody has money to buy dinner all the time. It's to say that we, as a people, we don't stand for our people, my neighbor, to go to bed without dinner while I have dinner. And so as people watch, for example, even footage from Gaza now, which what's happening in Gaza is unfathomable for the human um, capacity to fathom such horror. You know, in the last 30 days, the amount of bombs as two nuclear bombs have been dropped on Gaza in 30 days. People having to dig through rubble to find pieces of their children so they can put it together and try to put it in a in a bag and save it so they can give them an honorable burial. Um, dogs going into hospitals to eat the cadaver of people that have been left dead. And yet you still see those who are physically living, trying still to ask each other, what can I bring you? Did you eat? Sharing the last tiny piece of bread, which is the only piece of bread a person can have all day with each other, having no water and then sharing whatever little water you find with your the person next to you, a stranger, someone you don't know. And people look at this and think that, oh, as if like this just came out right now. But no, this comes out from thousands of years of our indigenous culture teaching us that to eat alone is to die alone. It is important that we care for each other and that that is the epitome of what it means 
to be civilized. I live here in the United States and I walk around. And even before this, I have been baffled by the ability for folks to walk by a homeless person who's hungry and just to keep walking. It is a very normal scene. But in Palestine, this is not to idealize Palestine. It has its own issue. We are humans, unlike what others might think. With all of this, again, I repeat, 75 years of colonialism and brutal military occupation, yet you don't see homeless people in the street. Yet you don't see an elder sitting there living on the street with no one caring for them. Yet you don't see people whose anxieties left unchecked. The truth is, even as we are under the rubble today, we're more alive than most people who have all the comforts of the world. We still feel. Our hearts are still beating. We still care. We still want to reach out, even if it's at the risk of my own life. So to bring it back to your question about seeds, it didn't come from nowhere. These seeds are us. We are these seeds. And so when I started looking for seeds, I wasn't looking just for seeds because I think seeds are a commodity that I want to produce tomatoes or cucumbers to purchase and to own. But I knew that these seeds have been loved and cared for and passed down over thousands of years by my grandparents and great-grandparents who understood this concept that even this little seed can be so generous that it actually gives its life to become one big gourd that then feeds a family and then gives birth to more seeds that feed hundreds more. And it is no coincidence, perhaps, that even as we save our seeds in Palestine, traditionally, particularly Baal seeds, which are seeds that are grown with no irrigation, with respect to our microclimates, we save them in ash. We save them in ashes to protect them from disease. And, and it's actually incredible when you really think about it. A lot of people come to the library and they look at the seeds and they're like, oh, why are your seeds gray? <laughs> My seeds are not gray. My seeds are are ashy. <laughs> are ashy. <laughs> but no, my seeds are, are 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 have have laid their lives yes. through fire in order for others to live. Each seed, each story I found, each person I had tea with, each time I put the seed in the ground, each time I went to somebody and saw what they did with the seeds they got, each time I harvested seed, each time we got together to eat the fruit of our seeds, and each time we gathered the seeds that have laid their lives for us to have life, every time it was a reminder and an affirmation that even though the intention of the political system is to kill us. Death does not exist. We continue 
to be here. We continue to exist. We continue to love. And we continue, most importantly, to be generous. Even when it doesn't feel good, yet you, you, you feel a spiritual obligation to do it because you hope that the seed next to you, even if it's a stranger seed, would also be inspired by that generosity to give back, to be alive. It's how you give life. My journey with the seeds has been a journey of trying to collect my own wounds and to lick my own wounds and to also offer my wounds to the world in a dignified manner and say, hey, I am not the only one in pain. Maybe you should look at your own pain too. Maybe if you looked at your own pain, you wouldn't have to inflict so much pain on me. Mm. As always, your beautiful words are having such a, a profound impact on me. And what you're naming encapsulates the, the conversation I'm, I'm trying to show up to and this interplay or this nuance that teaches us that we can pretty much learn all we need to know about life as we uplift the interrelations between seeds and humanity and that they are cousins or are the same and that the systems that we need to sustain life are all interconnected. But as you, you, you tell us the story and tell us about um, these seeds preserved in ash and coming out gray, I see again the images of human beings in rubble and digging through ash and walking around with gray tears falling down their face. And organizer and alderwoman Rosanna uh, Rodriguez says this, as you name this heightened level of spiritual and human resilience, I'm also having the feeling like you should not have to be so fucking resilient, right? No human should have to have resilience at this level. And so we launched this project, Respair, which is all about the discipline of hope and how do we turn away from despair. And folks have in this time like named how hard that is. And the best answer that I can see is the solidarity work that one is most importantly happening with the folks that are surviving in Gaza and in Palestine, but also globally in the face of this betrayal, we are also seeing what looks like from my position, an expression of solidarity like we have not seen before um, and a commitment to solidarity. And so as this inhumane resilience is asked or demanded, how are you seeing this interplay between this betrayal and the solidarity as we see the parallel between ashy seeds and people having to dig through rubble? This is a very important question. It is the question that we must be talking about right now. This is not about Palestine. We should make no mistake that this is not about Palestine. What this is, and what I think people are waking up to, and I don't like the word solidarity as much as hopefully partnership, because solidarity suggests that I'm in pain and you're fine, but I know you ain't fine. I know that none of us, the three of us here, are fine on this call. And I know that our communities are not fine. When we think about Palestine and the question of, oh, our resilience, yes, it is not humanly 
possible to bear this kind of pain. And actually, we don't. We end up broken, hurt, and often, as history has shown us and is showing us as I speak, hurt people hurt people. We are in this painful moment being asked to truly be kin. Do we want to be kin in this Mother Earth? Or do we want to continue this idea of separation? Because what is happening in Palestine is happening right here in this so-called United States. And in fact, the valley where I live right now, where I'm sitting and speaking to you, oh, it's so peaceful right now. But I walk and my body feels the, the blood in this river here. And it is an area where Native Americans who became refugees in what's today Connecticut and Massachusetts came and took refuge in what's today also called the Hudson Valley, which is a colonial name. And then they were killed again and forced again to be refugees. And now most of them live in Wisconsin or northern New York and have to come here just to see their land that doesn't look like their native land, but it is their land and they know it. And so there are so many layers of this violence that unless we now really have the honest conversations with each other about how it's all not just connected, it's all the same, then we're really missing the gift Palestine is giving us right now, which is to see that enslaving people, burning people, stealing people's lands, and continuing to do so today in little ways and in big ways. And you don't have to throw big bombs on people to kill them. How many people in our society are on drugs and can't wake up because if they wake up, it would hurt too much. Are they living? You know, it's a struggle. Having hope is often not an option. Mm-hmm. My friend and I yesterday were discussing he's Palestinian and we're like grieving, crying, and sometimes making fun of the world. And sometimes just like, how do you fathom the unfathomable? Mm-hmm. We were talking about the question of hope. And he was telling me, I think the only hope is when you become completely hopeless. Having hope, he thinks, is dangerous, basically. And I thought this way for most of my life because hope is scary. Like, oh, if I have hope, then I'm, I might be disappointed. But yet, at the same time, you also see and watch in our lives when we don't have it we don't survive because we have to have it to survive. So I would say that we don't have the option to be hopeless unless we want to truly die. And the other thing is that going back to the things unseen, it is the power to imagine what in this painful moment we can't see that can pull us through. Like a couple of Septembers ago, Six Palestinian prisoners, they were in high security political prison, 
dug a tunnel with a spoon over, obviously, a very, very long time and freed themselves. Of course, they were quickly captured afterwards uh, because Israel has massive surveillance, and which is also something for people to be reminded as they think about this and what's happening. Uh, So they captured them again, but one of them said, you know, he wrote a letter to his mother and left it before he was captured again. And he said, I know I'm going to be tortured. But this this guy had been in prison since he was like 15. So his whole life was in, in political prison where everything around them says, you're just going to die. He was sentenced to twice life in prison. <laughs> and he said, but it was all worth it for the moment of freedom and the ability to see children again and then to taste the fruit of the valley. The reason I share their story, because in the midst of this dark dungeon of a prison, they were able to imagine their freedom. But everything around them told them that their freedom was impossible, that their lives didn't matter, that they are going to die and rot in this solitary confinement. But with a spoon, a rusty spoon, So when I think about the story, I'm like, wow, how can I really say I'm hopeless? How can I just like dismiss such determination to live and say, oh, with all the tools I have, I'm hopeless. And yet I do feel massively hopeless, like most of the time. (laughs) It's a dance and it's a hard dance, but that's again the war on our spirits. Because the system is designed to for you to believe that you are stupid, you are worthless, you don't matter, you're black, you're Arab, you're whatever, we're all shit. So we're supposed to just eat shit and take whatever shit they give us and eat it and be happy that we have their shit and say thank you. But there is something that people sadly don't talk about much here. The price of the shit that they eat is that, yes, they are physical bodies moving around, but they are physical bodies moving around with no dignity. It's a question for everybody. So when people ask me, oh, what should we do for Palestine? And they act like they're sorry for me. I'm like, I'm equally sorry for you because you don't seem to see how you are an equal not just victim, you're a victim and a participant mm-hmm. because you are you're accepting the bowing of your head. You're accepting this uh, contemporary style, soft enslavement, whatever you want to call it. You're accepting you're accepting that where your whole life is controlled by your bills, by a quote-unquote boss, by an eight-to-five where you can't do human activities between. You're just a, a machine. I don't know. Like People are accepting the system and we're participating in it. So who's really free here? I want to go back to something that you named. The thing that I have, I think in doing this work always held where I can hold hope is it's like the timeline is different, right? You know, Damon, you've like often used the story of 
seven generations of enslavement and the the fourth generation where there was no one on generations on either side that had ever been free, but people continued to believe that that was possible. And so that feels akin in some ways. And I think in moments of confronting the reality of the much shorter timeline of destruction, it is really hard to hold that other scale of like what could be possible, right? And I think it's part of why sometimes people don't, they're dismissive of us when we're like, no, you have to do the radical imagination work and all that. And they're going like, but we're seeing the reality now. And I usually don't fall into that job, but I think when the scale of the like immediate destruction feels so acute, it feels almost like disrespectful to go like but generations from now what else could be possible again that's something that the seeds and and the experience of people who survive can come to but i i I don't know that's something that i've been that that came up for me while you were talking does that make sense yeah yeah i mean it's so real i feel it acutely i mean i'll i'll just take you through a little timeline of the last month for me the first week, I felt massively unsafe in my own apartment. I started to have severe panic attacks. I magically was helped by a friend to drive down to see some friends three hours away. And I started to have more panic attacks where I would forget even who I am. And it's kind of natural because the reality is so unbearable that I think my body just couldn't, like I had to disassociate from reality, literally. And then also feeling like, oh, it's so hopeless and I am useless. And even as I tell you this, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm hopeless and it's useless. Okay. But then there are moments that cannot be denied, such as when finally uh, a friend convinced me to go to the rally in DC and I was very, you know, broken, too broken to get up and walk. And, and I magically also went and I saw 300,000 people of every background walking and screaming their lungs out, free Palestine. And the amount of amazing, incredible Jewish youth who have developed the right analysis, the amazing amount of Black folk who were there, who for me was so helpful because like one dear friend, she's an elder woman and And she just said, you know, because I kept telling her, I'm useless, I'm useless, I don't know what to do. And she hugged me and she's like, there are times to fight and there are times to take shelter. Right now you need to take shelter. And I hadn't allowed myself to think that way because all my life I had to be in grief and in fight. But this is a woman who remembers lynching of people in the South in her in her town. She's not someone talking about philosophies. She's lived this. And then to find this tenderness with all these people who have known pain. This is not something they were 
talking off the top of their head like, oh, this is intelligent. No, they know. They know. So we are partners in this beloved pain. This this wound became our like place where we hug on each other, we kiss on each other. And so to to walk with people, 300,000 of them, I had to sit and I had to face myself. And 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 then the truth is that this is the result of many years, at least for me, I've organized for the last, whatever, 20 years of my life. And every time I thought, what's the point? Another showing of a movie, another podcast, another uh, exhibition, oh, whatever. Who cares about my little essay I wrote in some God knows what magazine? But yet I saw in the street, this is the product of each one of us who decided, I am going to tell, I'm going to tell my story and I'm going to listen to the story of the other person in front of me. And it was amazing because that did give me hope. It gave me hope that, first of all, not everybody has lost their heart. Clearly, at least 300,000 still have it. And they showed up in D.C. It is true that every little thing we did that we thought was meaningless clearly touch somebody and to go back to the seeds well i don't know where half my seeds went around the world but there are places and sometimes i get the email and sometimes i don't and some i'll never know about where someone from hawaii writes me and they're like oh i have your zucchini seeds and they're doing so good in hawaii and i'm like what i don't know who you are but clearly it did something over there and it's so tiny it's a seed so for me that day really kind of got me up again and helped me again first that people who've had the experience of having to shelter people who have experienced enslavement giving me courage to know how to stand on my feet when i'm being whipped i needed that and you hope that one day we would be able to share with each other more of the beauty of each other's lives rather than how we, like Damon just said, like how we have bared the unbearable. But that tenderness comes from this pain, from, from knowing the pain. So yes, I mean, it's going to go up and down is what I'm saying. And Maybe within not even an hour, within five minutes of a conversation, I'll tell you this is hopeless. And then I'll tell you by the end, oh my God, this is the most hopeful thing ever. But the, but what doesn't change is we can't afford to be hopeless. I really want to sincerely thank you for sharing that story and sharing that experience so purely and, and with such vulnerability. I felt so much. Um, I think first, just like an unbearable sadness as you make these global connections of decade-long and century-long pains. We we have been so taught to separate that even in this time, it is it has been difficult to connect my ancestral experience because it's like, oh, it's not our time now, or oh, you know, it is it is a different moment. And so, one just the reminder of the interconnections of 
this survivorship that is this like global diaspora that transcends race and nation state of survivors, of freedom fighters, of healers, of stewards. But then just the, the anger of what this violence does to us and, you know, feeling what happened to you and your, your spirit and your body and, and your psychosomatic day to day. Right. And, you know, to have to disassociate, to, to have to forget to survive and to sustain. We only measure violence in these kind of gruesome numbers of bodies that we no longer see with pulses. And we need Vivian Sensor's mind. We need your heart. We need you. We need you to remember. And and I think it can get overlooked or discounted the multiplied effect of what this does to our bodies for those of us who are still here in this plane. And then, yeah, just that notion of partnership, you know, being proud of people for stepping in. But but I want to talk about, you named how the seeds that other folks have had uh, have responded and zucchinis in Hawaii as, as an example. But for you, as you've had to find your body, as you've had to find people, as you've had to find your shelter and your hugs, um, or if I put myself in, the, in those shoes, I can imagine not being able to talk about seeds anymore, <laughs> right? Um, and so with that understanding, I'm curious, as a talker to seeds, how is that conversation going for you? Has, has there had to be silence? Are they loud? Are they, are, they, are they talking to you in a certain way? Are they demanding things of you? Are you taking time? Are you taking hiatus? How is you, your actual relationship to this seeding, to the library, to the, to the seeds themselves? going in this last month or this last week or this last day? Beautiful question. Uh, And, you know, your questions allow me to get clear about where I'm at. So thank you. I uh, never felt more in love with seeds than I am right now. And (laughs) to be in love in a time of war... (laughs) I mean, I guess people wrote novels about it. I'm just experiencing it right now. Yeah, I guess that is a whole genre. (laughs) Uh, um, And it's so funny because a lot of people ask me, oh, you're saving seeds. And I always, always felt like that question was so poorly framed because the seeds have been saving me. They have been saving all of us. And I have these like lucid moments of, I don't know if they're dreams or out of body experiences where I am in my seed library. It's a room on a hill and there's a part of me that is of course terrified that I will never be there again. And I prepare myself also for how it would feel when I, which I hope I won't, but, you know, we are losing people we love, a lot of people and places we love. So how to prepare myself to be a better mourner, but also how to surrender to it and how to allow the remnants of things to give me the string of to survive like the what do you call it the lifeboat and so 
without thinking, I have been just sharing uh, seeds with folks, some folks I know, some folks I just to say, can you please make sure you multiply? It made me think of, of trees because trees, when there's a fire and they're burning, somehow through their roots, they send a signal to the other trees. So they know the fire is already burning their sister tree and now it's coming to them. And in their preparation to die, guess what the trees do? They start to produce seeds like crazy. And they do this to ensure that they will live. They will live beyond their physical body now, but within the offsprings of their new seed. So I think I have been behaving a little bit like a tree, although many days I feel a lot like a fallen leaf, and that's mostly what I've been feeling. But yes, my relationship to seeds, and many of them uh, I have ignored sometimes and uh, I'm now feeling like oh I want to come closer I'm trying to get closer are there opportunities to support facilitating that closeness are there are there ways that other people can support you in getting closer to the seeds or that people can support the seeds themselves I think people should grow seeds, their own seeds, and if they want our seeds, and get deep into asking the hard questions of ourselves, because seeds are living beings, and I think the moment is to to get really hard on ourselves with with serious questions about who do we want to be, and so. As we put seed in the ground, which is a form of design, it's a process of co-creation where you, the soil, the air, the element, your hands, and the seed itself enter into a collective process of creating life. Let the seeds guide you to the real question of what kind of being do you want to be? I think this is the most urgent question right now as people also question themselves, hopefully question themselves, about their position right now as they watch a genocide, if they want to be engaged in the so-called intellectual exercise of, oh, what is this? Is it a genocide? Oh, no, it's not. Or do they really want to be people of, of love, tenderness, and truth? And truth is something that this society in particular is very talented at avoiding. I think what people should do to support me or support my seeds is to support themselves in telling the truth. You mentioned this being on mic in this time where there is so much uh, truth obfuscation is not a thing that you've been generally like open to doing but since we have you here like are there truths that like you watch people dancing around that you feel like since since people will hear this like you need them to know these truths is that a, and if that's not a useful exercise we don't have to do it but i just i wanted to open the the space of like if this is a time to do that what do you want people to hear is really the question i'm asking 
Well, there are many truths, Daniel. Mm. I mean, <laughs> uh, for sure. And it's not on you to name them all. I'm just saying, yeah. like, if there was, they're burning. The ones that feel burning to you to say, like, don't obscure this truth. Gosh, uh, I, my, my heart is racing with this one. There are so many lies. That's the problem. I don't want to be in a position to address the lies because they are lies and, and they kind of keep us busy. I think there's one truth. Uh, well, there are several, but one of them is that people need to pay attention to this uh, genius strategy of keeping us busy with uh, certain arguments that people put out there. You know, they keep us busy arguing about words so that we don't actually tell the truth. Language is very important right now in the sense that we need to name things for what they are, but then we get intentionally distracted by, oh, what should this be called? Oh, well, would you call it like... I don't know how many more lives need to die, how much more destruction need to happen for you to call a thing a thing. And the truth is also that while uh, they also want us to believe that there's uh, anti-Semitism on the rise, uh, that actually there's also a lot of beautiful partnerships that are being born right now between Jewish people of consciousness, Jewish people who also know the pain of genocide, who are not willing to lose their humanity and watch their own wounds become used as weapons to kill other people. And that is the truth about most people that I have met or that I, at least I interact with. And another truth is when they throw things like anti-Semitism is to really remember that anti-Semitism is real. It's very real, but it was born in this country and in Europe. And it's their hate of Jews that makes them love Israel so much. Because this country watched the Jewish people be slaughtered in the thousands before they interfered. And they only interfered for their own benefit. And yet they use again. But then portray themselves as the heroes. Yeah, but I think this, this the reason I'm a little hesitant to discuss this on right, right now, because I think it is a deep discussion in the sense that it's a real conversation that we should have together because the truth is we are natural allies. Because these people in power are using our pains and our wounds for their own benefit. And in fact, this is a time for us to do the unthinkable of fortifying our partnership and fortifying our commitment to a world that is tender, a world that is kind, and a world that doesn't want to allow another genocide. And so I think this is important because this is how they want to like distract us, also make us hate each other. One of the most beautiful things that's happening in the midst of this also is so much love. You know, I'm talking here with all of you, like I have beautiful partners who are not Palestinian, but they don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about their own violence, which are projections. So. We are also in front of an opportunity as a human species because 
Palestinians who are now the victims are going to be in their own pain when hopefully this is all said and done. And the only, the only victory which I hope Palestine will do is produce an interruption of the human pattern where oppressed becomes oppressor. Yeah. Which is so much to ask of a people. <laughs> and yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's not, that's why I don't know if like this is a big conversation, but it is a real conversation. We have to also not allow like white colonial history to dictate our future and our story. Like they have been painting our story and it's mostly not true. And we get to now tell our story and maybe we tell a new story, a brand new story altogether. Mm -hmm. That's such an important assignment or lesson. I, I, I don't know how to frame it, but I think it's easy for us to fall into this romantic notion of valorizing all oppressed people as inherently and eternally righteous and justified and good. And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this, you know, for people in Chicago, like we're seeing black communities be riled up in anti-immigrant policies that like mirror the like logics behind white supremacist redlining. And it's really frightening and really disheartening. And so to, again, understand without it going into this like false nobility or this like forced peace rhetoric that can also be dehumanizing, but that the largest assignment is to not only survive, but to retain and still expand our humanity in the face of this immeasurable and unfathomable dehumanization. Like that, that is the ultimate project. And really, once you lay it out like that, you're right of that it is it is not just about Palestine, right? Like that that is a a global assignment that to be honest, we have failed at most most oh, yeah, most of have, the time. No, we're not. We're not. We're not. But that goes back to when you asked me in the beginning what animal, and I said eagle, hawk, owl. I think what the eagle and the hawk and the owl call us to do is to have sharper vision and to be able in the midst of everything to see very, very clearly. And I think the powers that have been stepping on our necks and benefiting from our pains have been doing a great job of blurring our vision so much that we can't see each other and we cannot see but our own pain and then using our pain to make us hurt other people so i think it is the task for us if we want to remain human which i think we're already in a moment where we're like hybrid human whatever this new entity called human is going to be what what kind is it? And, you know, as a Palestinian in this moment, in my pain, which is a pain I don't wish on any living being, I pray, this is my prayer, may I never be in the image of my oppressor. Ashe. 
I have I have one more truth that I'm curious about that that I feel like you have uniquely positioned yourself to speak to. And I'm I don't know. I'll try. Well, you try, and you, you know. It, but if not, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but uh, I think you know, understandably so, and often from a righteous place. The way in which we are are measuring this moment has been focused on the human cost and the human impact, and. It is important to note that all oppression, but definitely this genocidal oppression, is land-based. And so I just want to make some time to talk about this moment through what is happening to the land and how we need to understand. I, I, you know, I hesitate to say how to protect or what, you know, there may not be anything from here that we can do, but I just want to make sure that as we talk about life and as we talk about this space, we obviously have to center the people. But we, we, it is our duty and our responsibility to understand that the, the land is living and the land is being harmed and abused and killed as well. And so what is the truth about that, that that you feel comfortable speaking to? The truth about that is that as Palestinians, we don't separate our bodies from the land. This is not a, a concept in our consciousness. I am the land. And so when you watch what's happening to the bodies of humans, that is what's happening to the body of soil. And we are people of soil. We say, which means people of soil. The soil and us are, are the same. It's funny you ask me this question because I have been thinking about, well, I'm in New York, like, why does it hurt my body right now? And it hurts my body because I am part of that body of land. And land isn't property that you own. Land is a living thing. And so, of course, we are also people who love bread and birds and cats and (laughs) all of it. And it's all hurting, and we feel it, and we experience it. You know, this is all happening during the olive harvest season, which is our most sacred, literally sacred time of the year, and yet our olives are being burnt. And for us, the olive tree is not a tree like you refer to whatever a thing you buy. It, we consider the tree like a family member. Some of our trees have names. Um we consider them sacred beings in our in our neighborhoods in our in our yards in our lands so other than the direct bombing what's been happening and actually we already lost one farmer that we've known uh in the circle of our seed library who was killed uh by a settler who went down while he was picking his olives and shot him And so a lot of the farmers that are part of our community, uh, they have had a hard time reaching their olive groves, which is always the case. But right now, militias of settlers, many of them are from Brooklyn or from, you know, they're, they're not even from there. They don't understand. They're just setting fire to our groves and our lands and worse, torturing our people are torturing the, the the guardians of the land. The land is in so much pain, I keep wondering if 
if we're going to have an earthquake or something because it's it, it's pain is so loud and it's so intense how do you continue to love something that's dying and to think about it also from a global perspective that the earth itself is in hospice we are having to learn to die and to say goodbye to things we love and also to still fall in love with things that are dying and then figure out again i keep saying who we're going to be because we are the land we are the seed we are the birds we are not separate and the idea that we are separate is the essential reason why we are so separate and we are in in this pain yeah i mean anyone who has loved someone who has died is transformed by that process of that love and it can go different ways as we said but that is the point where we're asking okay then what do you want to be transformed to what do you work to be transformed toward is a really beautiful question um oh you know we've heard seek and tell truths and gather your seeds um is there anything else you know for people who want to build something akin to a seed library in their space you know obviously there's the technicals and and things but what else should people know if they want to start that work uh, that seeds are sacred and that they should be the catalyst to help us create more tender spaces in this world more safe spaces and spaces where we can tell again our stories and the truth so as people are hopefully putting seed in the ground or even cooking or sharing food or whatever uh making tea to remember to share from that same spirit of these palestinian seeds teach us which is generosity of also spirit and to keep this question going and to keep pushing because we still do need to have a ceasefire we still need to end the occupation we still need to tell the truth and for people to look at their own pain and make their own pain the guide to why the pain of palestine matters that's the only way that we will achieve collective liberation so i can tell you what we're organizing here and hopefully people would like to do the same and if people are interested on december 1st we're hosting a funeral and in this funeral we will have seeds with the names of people who have been killed obviously there've been thousands and thousands of people killed so we need people to plant their seeds everywhere in the world so that they continue live and they continue to teach us so that their life isn't gone waste but hopefully their life could be a teacher an inspiration for what we don't want to be and what we hope to be as a people as we conclude this conversation i just want to thank you so much Vivian, you know, not only for your words here, you know, and as we talked, I both 
cried a lot, but also felt rejuvenation of spirit in ways that I'm grateful for. And that, you know, that pain and that revitalization often coexist is just a healthy reminder that, you know, I am still here. Um, but in general, you, you're often on our mind, but just in this season, I'm going to tell you something that sounds like I'm lying, but it's the actual truth. Um, whenever, uh, especially when we're interviewed or you know, often off mic, but sometimes on the show, uh, when people ask us like what conversation sticks out the most and or, or you know, what was one that I should listen to if I want to know what Ergo or Respair is about, um, undoubtedly your name, if not comes up first, always comes up in that conversation of the hundreds and hundreds of people that we've spoken to uh, even five years later. And so it, it has left a mark on us and you are often with us in our mind. But during this time of egregious uptick of genocidal violence, um, you and your loved ones and your community have been so deeply in our heart. And so for you in this time, to have it within you to share, to vibrate your vocal cords at all, to talk about any of this shit, to talk about it with us is really an honor and a gift that we cherish. And yeah, I'm just immensely grateful and proud and yeah, I have so much honor for, you know, usually we say the work that you you do and yes, the work that you do, but the, but the person that you are um, and the, I, I don't have my farming uh, vocabulary is off for this metaphor, but like when the, the mapping out of the seeds, of where to plant, of where to harvest, of where to to celebrate, of where to grieve, of where to mourn, um, is immeasurable. And so, Vivian, thank you so much. And we love you. I love you. And just so much love. Thank you, Damon. And thank you, Daniel. I feel the same. And I also always tell people to go to your uh, show when I think of a, you know, they ask me, oh, what my your favorite interview? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you've kept it real, but also because, and I think I've shared this five years ago, and it's still true, and I have to tell you that I am so relieved that my intuition was right on because there have been so many people that I'd expected to stand in integrity who have not mm. and uh, to see you both in integrity and in courage and in love uh, continues to give me hope for for this life hopefully so thank you both it's all of us together Ashley. yeah love you love you <laughs> I think as we come out of this convo, we're just feeling so much love for Vivian and so grateful to be in community with her. And she gave us so much, so we gotta do what we always do, which means it's time for the peer review. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Eva, what's up? You you, you here with us? Hey y'all. It was um so um, lovely and so hard and, and so needed to sit down and listen to this conversation. I'm so grateful for you and for Vivian for taking the time. A lot is going on. I see you out there. Yeah, I mean, I think it was challenging, but cathartic in some ways to get to have a conversation that felt like an us conversation on mic. Um, but before we get to our reflections, what jumped out to you uh, from the conversation? 
You know, Vivian said several times in several ways that this is a time that we really need to get really hard on ourselves about who we want to be. And so, mm-hmm. yes, this is a time to get really hard on ourselves about who we want to be. And I think that what we love about this job and and being able to speak with all of these experimenters is they are people who have gotten really hard on themselves about who they want to be, where they are, and are contributing. So what Vivian said, that we need to pay attention, that we need to fortify our partnerships, that we can't separate our bodies from the land. I'm going to be sitting with her words, these words, for a long time. She said, may I never be in the image of my oppressor. Yeah. It was so remoralizing. I don't know the, the word. The word <laughs> All right, respair. Okay, yeah, respair. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's yeah. calm down after over being, there. <laughs> after being demoralized. <laughs> um, because, yeah, you know, so often there is what seems to be this like immaterial way that we go about processing the work and what we are doing and trying to become. And it's really about creating and becoming new humans, creating new humanity. And in this time, I have felt so soft in that and felt so ineffectual from that approach and felt like, how can you be talking about future generations when generations are being wiped away, right? Like, how can you talk about wrestling with your contradictions or transformative approaches or understanding the humanity or, or, or still having empathy for all in the face of you and your people and your land? being literally immediately destroyed. But to hear that commitment is so grounding and so affirming that this, you know, Risperian, Bogsian, Kabian (laughs) (laughs) way that we are trying to, you know, develop disciplines of hope hold true. Because when we talk about abolition and we talk about state violence, right, like militarism and border and open air prisons are the heights of what we want to see away with and how we want to create community beyond and the real violent reality of they're not going to wither away or they're not going to concede. And there are so many escalations that we are vulnerable to, and many of them are happening in real time right now. Um, And so to hear still the commitment to listen to the seeds, to listen to the earth, and, you know, just honoring her vulnerability and transparency and even the difficulty of coming on and having this conversation, the discernment that she's had to have just for her own self. And, you know, so I'm, I'm grateful uh, for her willingness to, to trust and share space with us to process through these things because um, it's been really hard. And so to be able to, in this space, dig in to the most overwhelming forms of state violence that I've seen in real time. Yeah, and to show how hard it is to hold to those values and that way of moving. But she named it as like, this isn't because it's necessarily like the most politically expedient approach. It's because like, this is what enables me to maintain my humanity in the face of dehumanization. Like it's not just out of altruism or political pragmatism. It's from a place of like holding tight to who you know, we are and for her, who she is and who her people are, that like, this is part of who we are that we can't lose. And I think that's a really vulnerable thing to say on a microphone in a time where there's a lot of bad faith depictions of who her people are. And to say like, you know, we have the potential to mirror our oppressors, not because of who we are, but because we're people (laughs) is a hard 
thing to hold while still like fighting for those people's survival. So if there's any bad faith listeners out there, please don't take that and run with it. You know, like it's from a place <laughs> yeah. of, it's from a place of humanity. Yeah. No, I mean, that really resonates. And something I've also been struggling with is I've always felt this interconnectedness and this solidarity at the hip between black liberation struggle and Palestinian liberation. Um, and at this time, that's feel like a like it feels inappropriate to compare. And one, just hearing that affirmation and hearing how she still looks to the intertwining of those lineages for her resilience. But then also to the point of like the becoming your oppressor, right? Like out of chattel slavery and Jim Crow apartheid and redlining, seeing now black folks, you know, use segregationist type language in migrant crisis or to see the uptick in like popular, you know, misogynoir social media discourse and black patriarchy, like seeming to be on the rise and in this backlash, you know, I've been really struggling with like, as a people, once you experience a certain type of violence that like predisposes you towards resistance, towards liberation, towards a morality, towards a, a higher type of dignity. And I've been challenged with the truth of that. And so hearing in the time of like, while digging through the literal rubble, like digging through the rubble of our humanity, and also like to have human understanding of the oppressor as well is something that I heard from her. You know, like there are ways that we should look at how the clans and police trolls, you know, come from different like European oppressions and how like lynching was done to white peasants. And then that was brought to the States and perpetuate, right? Like you become your oppressor and, you know, you don't have a sympathy, but you can empathize and understand that the way in which the violence that Jewish people have had to survive and how that oppression is real. And there still needs to be solidarity about that, but realizing that that now is being replicated or reproduced. And like, that is something to resist more than just, you know, lines in the sand, like, really this battle for our spirit and for our soul is yeah who who we i cried like a baby eva i know you might have <laughs> i know you you might have heard it i might have yeah. alluded to it but like without the visual for the folks listening y'all during that conversation i was over here bawling <laughs> and not b-a-l-l b-a-w-l let's make that very clear <laughs> yeah bawling <laughs> Uh, all right, that was a lot from us who were in the Cabo. Eva, what else what else jumped out to you? As we are are finding our energy stores depleted and then what is the option <laughs> filled up, <laughs> depleted and then filled up again and again, I think repleted. Repleted. Thank you, Damon. Um, you know, I think that there's just there's so much to do right now. There's so many ways to connect with each other in this in this fight and in this grief. And you know, I really appreciated when Vivian was was also reminding us that you know the lies keep us busy. You know, when I sit with myself and the world I'm living in, at the end of the day, I'm just thinking of what actions have I taken today that are going to help bring about a ceasefire. And so I hope that. Vivian helps us be more discerning that this conversation can lead people to more action and that it transforms us. I mean, I think that Vivian said, you know, anyone who has loved someone who has died, you're transformed and you you do work to transform. And so that question of how can 
we do this work in this this time that we can't turn back from. I was texting a friend earlier this week about they're just like the person to ask about what your protest sign should be. You know, just the best wordsmith, pun person, strategist. And I'm taking I'm insulted. <laughs> one of my friends Um, thank you very much thank you and my friend the the phrase that they sent back to me when I asked for something to write down was you know there's no coming back from this and that's Mm. true there's no coming back from this and so I hope that what Vivian has to say is a guiding light for people who need that light right now anything else you'll want to get into before we hop out of the lab um I want to end honoring the spirit of the project and then the experiment and the work of stewarding, caring for, loving, remembering, having a deeper relationship beyond extraction with the seeds, with the earth, with the soil, with the air, with the birds, and how easy it is in times like this and in all times for that to be forgotten or subordinated. We have to remember that like our liberation is in the land and the struggle against armies and tanks and borders and police districts and prisons is a land struggle. It it is about sovereignty. It is about determination of the land. And also that land that we are fighting to determine has the power to feed us and has the powers to connect us and transcend time and space in ways that if we pay attention to it can teach us the lessons for the world we want to build. And so I'm so grateful for Vivian of like helping to bring that lesson to the world in like one of the most direct and intense ways. Amen. Oh, and for you folks that maybe miss or can't take a joke, I know that replenish is the word. I was doing a joke <laughs> thing. It was a callback. So replenished exists. I know that that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> All right, spirits replenished. We got it, Dave. Let's uh, let's let's go out in the world and stay active. Um, Eva, how can folks find the rest of the experiments and the other work of IC? You can always go to millionexperiments.com or interruptingcriminalization.com. You can follow IC on socials at interruptcrim. And we don't have this out in the world yet, but we're just like giving you a little sneak peek. We mentioned a while back that we made this film, One Million Experiments. We did a screening in Chicago back in September, and we're going to be hitting the road all of next year, bringing this film to you. Uh, We'll have some screenings that we'll share more info about in the next couple months. But if you want to bring this film to your space, your campus, your organization, your convening, you can hit us up at contact at respairmedia.com or our socials at respairmedia or, of course, uh, Interrupt Crim as well. It's a beautiful film. You can see the trailer now at respairmedia.com. Just click on the 1 million experiments button. And with that, we'll be back in the lab just a couple more times here doing what we do. Uh, Until then, much love to the people. Peace. Peace.